I'm Catherine Cartwright, and you're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, hosted by Dr. Jack Miller. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. Attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast, Episode 44. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. My interview for this show is with Joanne Hardesty, a well-known public figure around Portland, a pioneering, high-profile, and sometimes divisive figure in city politics. When she was elected to the Oregon House of Representatives in 1994, she was only the third black woman to serve as an Oregon state representative, and in 2018, she became the first black woman elected to Portland City Council. She served a single four-year term as a Portland City Commissioner, spanning a consequential time in Portland and the nation. That included the pandemic, of course, but also over 100 straight days of street protests in Portland during the summer of 2020, sparked by the killing of George Floyd. During that time, she oversaw Portland Fire and Rescue, the Portland Bureau of Transportation, and the Office of Community and Civic Life. After coming in first in the 2022 primary to retain her position on the city council, winning 44% of the vote in a very crowded field of challengers, she lost in the one-on-one general election face-off by five points. I sat down with her for our talk about a year after she left office. Here's our conversation. I'm sitting in my office today with Joanne Hardesty. Thanks for coming in, Joanne. My pleasure. You were a Portland city commissioner. That's a pretty big job. It's a major city. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like as a human being? What were the joys and the obstacles? Was it boring? How does it compare to other things you've done, other endeavors that you've undertaken? What was it like to be in that role? Well, let me just say it was never boring. You just (laughs) never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next. And I had the distinct privilege of serving during COVID and during worldwide racial justice movements and... A severe ice storm, severe heat. I mean, it was like everything was. Ha- I was waiting for the uh, locust to come, right? Because that was the only thing that hadn't happened in my time. I will say, it was radically different than I thought it would be. I thought it would just be we would, as a council, be debating public policy. We would be meeting with constituents. We would be working collectively to make the city a better place. That, that, that's actually what I thought I had signed up to do. That was the dream job, or the dream that version the of dream, the job. Yeah. That was the dream version that I had, and I just was really excited about it. 
especially as someone who never saw themselves in that role. I mean, in fact, I'd been lobbying City Hall for 30 years before I ended up on the City Council. That's interesting to me because I was going to ask you, where did you get that idealized version of the job compared to the reality of it? It sounds like a big gap. So it's not like you were completely naive. You'd been lobbying. So why did you have that idea of what it would be like? And then it was so different from the lived experience. I think my whole life I had lived with this optimism gene because I just assumed that, you know, everybody wants good things and people want to do what's good for the general public. And so I really did come in with this idealized, oh, great, now we're going to be in a position because I believe in my soul that people want this world to be an equitable, inclusive place where everybody gets to thrive. And that, that's what I went to City Hall thinking. Yeah, and I've never met anybody who goes into public service who doesn't do it because they want to make the world a better place. You know, I've never met presidents before, but that seems to be a pretty common feature. So what's the source of the disjuncture between that sort of idealized version and what really goes on? What I came to realize, especially in reflecting back, is that... That's simply not true. <laughs> people like the status quo the way it is. The people who are benefiting from the system as it is want the system to stay the way it is because it works for them. The people who don't get benefit from, from the system continue to advocate for things to be better. And even though there's a lot of lip service to wanting a more equitable, inclusive community, it's just simply not true. If you follow the data, the data tells you clearly that most folks are very comfortable with the status quo as it is. I would say that goes under the one of the frustrations and obstacles is that, you know, we have a status quo oriented system mm -hmm. and people who like that outcome, they have an advantage because keeping things the way they are is way easier than changing them to make them better and different. Absolutely true. And people say they want change, but as long as you don't have to make them change. As long as they still get all the benefits, as long as, soon as, as, long as they still get all the resources, then yeah, in theory I want the change to happen, but you want me to change? Oh, right. no, that's different. And do you think that that's because people are fundamentally self-interested or because they just have their kind of myopic view or that's just lip service? I mean, I agree with you that people are like, oh, yeah, make the world a better place. Just don't do it on my dime. That's right. <laughs> the reality that I have learned is that we have a very racist society and we have um, racial inequity built into the system. And people are fine with that. I mean, I tell people if, if white kids graduated at the same rate that black and brown kids graduated, there'd be riots in the street. But as long as they're black and brown kids, then it's okay. Because after all, you know, we don't we shouldn't expect much more from them. You're a black woman in America. I am. And I am. one of the things that's been said about the Portland City Council recently is it's diverse now. We have more <laughs> people of color. You're laughing at that. And I'm just wanting, like, I'm bringing this up because right. that's a form of self congratulation that goes on in this city. It's true, though. There is greater representation, but it sounds like in the underlying sense, you're mm. like, well, that doesn't make a huge difference. Well, yeah, just having people that look like me on council does not mean that they represent me. And what we have now is, even though there's a majority of people of color in the council, we have the most conservative city council that we've had in my lifetime in Portland. And I, I thought some of the other ones were conservative. But this one is really conservative. When you have black and brown men saying, well, we shouldn't talk about race because, you know, those days are over and now everybody's equal. That's a dog whistle that actually reinforces for the status quo. See, it's okay for me to be racist. It's okay that I don't have a diverse staff because it, it, we got a black and a brown man saying it. Right, and we have come so far 
part because our politics is open. Now, I want to get at the obstacles. You're indicating that like one of the underlying obstacles is that we have a fundamentally racist society. Yes. We also have, a, I would say, a, a public policy system that is very slow moving and very frustrating. What are some of the other things that you encountered when you got on the city council? Because, you know, I asked about boring, and you laughed at me. But I always imagined that you would have to le- read a lot of boring reports and go to a lot of slow-moving and terrible, torturous meetings. And I'm weird like that. Yeah. I love reading public policy. Okay. I, I, uh, and, in fact, when I was a legislator 26 years ago, one of my claims to fame was I would never uh, vote on anything I hadn't read thoroughly, right? And some of those bills were hundreds of pages long. I thought it was my responsibility. If you have elected me to represent you, that my job is to know what the heck I'm voting on. But it sounds like you liked it, too. Like, you enjoy that reading. I love the public policy debate. Is this a good policy? Is this a bad policy? Uh, But let me just say, it's not as hard as, as you would believe to make fundamental change happen. I mean, I was only there for one term, four years. But in that time, I got us out of the Joint Tourism Task Force. I created the Portland Clean Energy Fund. I got Portland Street Response up and running, and it was fully funded when I left. Who knows what they're doing with it now? And so if I think about the big policy changes, the police accountability measure with uh, 82% of voters voting yes, even though they're trying to totally take it apart now. So what I learned is that I came in as a community organizer. I did not come in as a policy wonk. Right? I, I, I was a policy wonk, but I was, I was more a community organizer. And so every public policy conversation I had was based on the grassroots. It came from the ground up, right? So it wasn't me sitting in my nice big office, kicked back, saying, okay, so what do I want to do today? No, it was really about how to use the people's voice to make policy change happen. So you can make change in a positive direction. You've listed a, a number of accomplishments. I always love it when people focus on accomplishments because mm-hmm. it's so easy to focus on what you didn't get done or That's the right. failures or the half measures. Right. So what were the frustrations that were involved in achieving those accomplishments and how do you like how do you get up every day knowing that it's a tough system? Yes. We have a racist society, we have a status quo oriented culture, it's a slog no matter what, and yet you got across the finish line in a number of ways. How do you get up in the morning and get yourself ready to do that? I felt like I didn't have a choice. I mean, it's like I jumped into this arena, I, and I came in being really straightforward about this is who I am, this is the work I want to do, and I came in and actually did that work. But again, having my office organized as an organizer office, so what that meant was we had a work retreat once a quarter, We've uh, developed a work plan. We prioritize what we're going to work on because what I learned early on at City Hall is that if you don't have a plan, people will plan for you. And so every, every day was an emergency. So I could have been responding to the emergencies every day or really having a work plan about what it was I wanted to get accomplished. The frustration is when people for Portland and Portland Business Alliance don't show up at city council meetings like regular people and say I agree or disagree because they think they're special. And so they don't actually have to show up at meetings. They just go and call the mayor or or call the the people on the council that support their perspective and push their viewpoint out of the public eye. You have a, a meeting about a policy issue. You have seven hours of public testimony. They don't show up, and then the whole council votes against all the people that showed up and testified. And you have to ask yourself, how does that happen? How do you sit in a meeting and listen to people go on and on and on about what a bad policy this is, and then ignore them, and then vote another way? 
Well, you do it because the people that you're hoping that are going to give you more money for you can get reelected or go to a bigger office are the ones that you are responsive to. Right. So and it sounds like a frustration is that you you thought and wanted those meetings to be real public meetings, and yet it sounds kind of like you're portraying it as pub, as political theater. We'll put this on for the people so they think we're listening to them, but we're going to do. But we're going so to. So that's that does sound very frustrating. And to I did then have to sit through those meetings knowing yes. that. All of those dedicated people who come and take a day off from work and put their research... Have to get child care, have to get public transit, or have to find parking downtown and sit indefinitely listening to certified smart people. I go on and on and on. It was very fascinating. Now, you know, if if this were a podcast about political reform, I would ask you... How do we change that? But I'm going to leave that question to just okay. kind of sit. Given that that's kind of the, the reality, that's a, that's a very frustrating thing. What can, without changing the system, what can a member of the city council, what can an activist, what can people who represent community groups, what can they do to address that problem? Or well, is it just kind of their screw? I am hopeful that the new change in city government that will go from five city council members to 12 council members and a mayor and people being uh, elected from districts will make a huge difference in who gets elected and how they perform once they get elected. Uh, I am not putting myself out there for this next election cycle, but I am talking to people who are really grounded in community. And so it's my hope the upcoming change and how the city is governed will allow for many more voices that collectively represent real people. The Pothole Problem Podcast is produced by White Tiger Productions and supported by White Tiger Press publisher of 1994, A Novel of Politics, written by me, Jack Miller. An intimate portrait of the power struggles, both great and small, that interweave the insular world of election campaigns, 1994 provides an unblinking look into the high-stakes battles of a U.S. Senate race, as experienced by a 29-year-old woman fighting to maintain the respect and obedience of her colleagues, balance life and career, rediscover her commitment to a better world, and revenge herself against an opposing campaign manager. For a sample chapter and online ordering, go to 1994novel.com. That's 1994novel.com. One of the things that interests me about people is how you got politicized, how you got into the political life. Did you grow up in a political family? Was there a catalyzing event? Did it Was it a slow development? You were born a fresh human being, and you at some point became a public servant. Yes. What was the process for you of getting from birth to that? Well, the process for me was being a child of the 60s. I mean, I grew up when people that looked like me was still being brutalized by law enforcement and people in power. I grew up during a time where there was still questions about whether you could live in certain neighborhoods. Uh, uh, I, my own family, uh, the, uh, the second home that my family owned, I was shocked to learn, and I was in middle school when we moved into that house, but it was a big detached house. Who knew anything about Maryland, right? They had row houses and had big detached houses. We moved into a big detached house with a big family. And then the same day, for sale signs went up on both sides of us. Didn't learn until years later that black people weren't supposed to live on our side of the street, right? The white people lived in the big detached houses, and the black people lived in the bow houses on the other side of the street. And you had a nice medium dividing it. And so my entire growing up, it was this conversation about why. 
Why are they beating up people who are just trying to get an education? Why are they brutalizing people who are trying to get a better home? I don't understand. And so we had these conversations at the kitchen table every night. My dad being from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, as a black man, he was not supposed to grow up to be a black man. As a black boy, it's like they tried to beat out being a black man out of him early on. My mom, born and raised in Baltimore, had a different lived experience, but her sisters, uh, she's from a family of 13, and many of her sisters could pass for white, and so they would go down to the store and buy the things the other sisters wanted that they couldn't get because they couldn't go and shop at Macy's and all the other downtown stores. So this was my life growing up. I was fortunate to start my life in Baltimore, Maryland, which was 80% black. And so the term minority just wasn't, I had never heard the term until I joined the military. Like, what the heck is a minority? But you weren't a minority, uh, <laughs> not I, in Baltimore. I wasn't a minority yeah. in Baltimore. Uh, so then fast forward and move into Oregon, and the demographics were flipped. So rather than being 80% black, it was 80% white and 20% everybody else. And so it was a radically different experience coming to Oregon. It you sounds like, me. though, you already were, you know, had a, a high level of political awareness. I mean, your parents, they crossed that color line. Like, they, they moved into the detached house on the white side of the street. So they made a choice. I, I'm assuming that they didn't do it accidentally or out of ignorance. They, they made a choice. That, yes, they did. And, and so they must have been an influence in your perception of what that all meant. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, like I said, every night on the evening news, uh, there were stories of folks that looked like me being brutalized, and we would talk about that. Uh, to my mom's credit, my mom was... Treat everybody like you want to be treated. Everybody's equal. And my dad, being born and raised in the South, just did not want to interact with white people at all. It's like when he got off work, he was done. Like he didn't want white people in his house. And so my mom and dad had a very different ways of coping, but both of them coped based on where they were born and, and how they were raised. Yeah, I mean, if your mom grew up in a house where passing, white passing was used as a tool, yeah, right. then they had different experiences. So your parents made this all very explicit to you when you talked about it. Yes. And, and so when you arrived in Portland, you were shocked to find this bizarrely racist place, I imagine, but you weren't ignorant. You had already been paying attention to, yes, to yes. issues of race in America for, for your whole life. I'd already been in the military. Yeah. I'd served four, four and a half years in the U.S. Navy. And what was that um, experience like as a black woman? Because that is, you know, the, the military is a strange place because it is a melting pot, it but it's also America. It is, <laughs> yeah. But the fabulous thing about being 18, 19 years old and joining the military is that I was just, uh, I was too dumb to know what it was I didn't know. <laughs> you know, like, for example, I remember the first orders I got. Uh, after boot camp, uh, they wanted to send me to Anchorage, Alaska, and I went, Anchorage? I can't go to Anchorage. It's cold in Anchorage. Right? Uh, and the guy looked at me with this very bizarre look, and he said, we're sending you back home. So I go back to Baltimore. My folks said, what are you doing here? I thought you joined the Navy. I don't know. They just told me to go home. Right? <laughs> Two weeks later, I get orders to the Philippines. I learned two years later that I should have been court-martialed, put in a brig, and then kicked out because I had disobeyed a direct order. But I ended up in the Philippines and loved being in the Philippines, loved serving on Navy ship. And in fact, one of my best experiences in the Navy was when the ship pulled into Mombasa, Kenya. And the ship pulls in, and the word got out that there were uh, military women on board because that was new at that time. And when the ship pulled in for miles and miles and miles, I saw nothing but black people. I mean, it's like people came from all over. I don't want to see these crazy military women, right? Uh, 
I get off the ship because I had already planned to take a vacation and take some leave while I was there. I get off the ship. The very first guy walks up to me and says, welcome home, sister. You've been gone 200 years. And I was just in tears. Wow. It was just like such a powerful moment. And looking out and seeing all these African people that had come out to welcome us, it was just pretty fabulous. Did that give you a desire to what get out of America, to celebrate the fact that... I can't even imagine what that did to your mind. Well, on the way to Mombasa, Kenya, the military was telling us now, you know, be careful out Be fearful. Basically, they were trying to tell us to be fearful of the people that were there. They don't like Americans. Uh, you could be robbed and killed. All, you know, all these horror stories they told us. I was like, I don't care. You know, I was, I was young. I don't care. I, I'm, yeah, I'm in Africa. I'm, I'm, I'm going. Um, and what I found were just some of the most sweet, embracing. I mean, I, I spent a week just going from place to place in Mombasa, Kenya, and loved it. But what it taught me was I could take care of myself anywhere on the planet, right? And so it gave me a sense of confidence that I, I, wouldn't, I didn't have when I left home. But I knew from my military experience, I, mean, I, I traveled all over. I lived in uh, the Philippines. I traveled to Mombasa, Kenya. I'd been all over the place. Um, and so I knew I could take care of me. That's a powerful feeling as a as a young person, and maybe as a young black woman, it it really empowered me. So I, so I had a lot more confidence. That's what's I, great about you. You have more confidence than you maybe deserve, but it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a it's a positive kind of self lie. I think it is. It is. It's like you just convince yourself. You know, like later sometimes you go back and you go. I survived that or I got through that. But yeah, I mean, if you just assume, and of course, my parents always told me you could do anything. Right, and you. So you now had that ex- the experience of being of their words. You felt it in your lived experience, and you gained the kind of confidence that yes. parents tell their kids all the time: you could do anything. Exactly. And exactly. a lot of kids are like, "Yeah, no, I can't." Yeah. Really. <laughs> and so you had a good. Ex- I mean, I'm seeing the yeah. kind of elements of a public servant mm-hmm. coming together. You you grew up in sort of a, a, a challenging time, mm-hmm. a racist time, mm-hmm. difficult parents who kept your eyes focused on all of the things that were ugly in America, and then this sort of empowering experience in the military. Mm-hmm. How did community organizer and mm-hmm. then later elected official come about? Well, my very first job in Portland was with the Black United Fund of Oregon. I credit that job with me staying in Oregon because when I first got here, as I said, you know, I looked around and I was like, there's like six black people here and they keep yes. rotating them around, right? <laughs> like extras brought in to make it look, <laughs> make it look more than yeah. it really is. But uh, the Black United Fund gave me the opportunity to travel around the state raising money uh, for that organization. And the Black United Fund was a foundation that provided resources for arts and music education, economic development. And so it was my very first job here. So it gave me the opportunity to travel around the state and talk to people. And I found people of color all over the state, black and brown people all over the state. And I found that people were doing like really incredible stuff, but you know, nobody knew it because they were really small and they were in these different communities all over the state. So that was my very first job here. And then I went to work for Beth Stein at Multnomah County. She was the county chairwoman at the time. And she was the very first politician that I trusted. Had you come to contact with politicians before that? Not not directly. She was the very first politician that I actually met and actually uh, she invited me in for an interview uh, after she was elected to county chair. Gladys McCoy had died. I knew Gladys McCoy. Uh, Gladys McCoy had died uh, and she replaced Gladys McCoy. She was the one that actually taught me how to be a good public servant. 
because when she was elected, you may remember this, there's a measure that passed that required public employees to pay into the public employee system. Bestine on day one at taking office gave every county employee a pay raise. She was like, I cannot in good conscience come in and then expect people to bring their best selves to work when they get a pay cut my first day in office. She was the only elected official in the state that did that. And I thought, whoa, now that's a woman of integrity. Yeah. But for the first year and a half, I followed her around the community meetings. <laughs> because, again, I was not used to elected leaders really having the same message, whether they were in northeast Portland or northwest Portland. And so she showed me that you could have integrity and be consistent and, and get work done. to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. What's something that used to outrage you and no longer does, and why the change? What used to outrage me, when I first got to City Hall, there used to be these guys that would come to City Hall for the sole purpose of cussing the mayor out. They'd wait till council meetings started, and then after the first panel or two, they would just get up, get up and start cussing the mayor out. And I remember my third day in office, I leaned over to the mayor and went, does this happen often? And he went, oh, yeah, every week. <laughs> well, oh, no. <laughs> this can't be. So the next week, I said to the mayor, I need to do an opening statement before you actually officially call the meeting to order. And I basically said... If your whole goal is to come to City Hall to cuss the mayor out, please don't do that because this is the people's house and the people have a right to be here. Uh, I did that. I got a lot of pushback. Oh, you just don't want the white boys. She's telling my white son he can't come to City Hall. Well, no, not if he's going to act like a fool. No, he can't come to City Hall, right? But what I realized later was I was outraged, but I think it worked very well for City Council. Because what happened was people had stopped coming to City Hall. Who wants to bring their mother to City Hall or their babies to City Hall when you know somebody's going to be cussing at the top of their voice and then it's going to be a disruption? And you don't actually get your two or three minutes of being in front of the council. That outraged me. And it doesn't outrage me anymore because it stopped after I actually called it out. And that surprised me, actually. And I thought to myself, well, why didn't the mayor do that? So you were surprised that you called this behavior out and then it ceased. And then it stopped. You didn't expect it to stop. when no. you, made, you were like, I have to say this. I but have to say this, and they're going to do what they have to do, right? But it shocked me that it just took one member of city council just saying, this is not okay. Right. I want people to bring their grandma. I want people to bring their babies. This is the people's house. This is not the house for people to come. And they didn't even, they weren't asking for anything. They just came to cuss the mayor out. Well, do that on your time. Don't do it on, on the people's time, right? right. So you're, one of the outrages, at least, is one that you cured in a way that was more surprisingly easy than you expected it to be. It surprised me <laughs> a lot because I expected a lot of negative pushback, and I did get the negative pushback, but they stopped coming. Sometimes you just have to call people out and they will stop. That's a great story, and it sort of feeds into the last question I, want to, I always ask people who've sort of been in the trenches for a long time, which is, 
somebody's young, they want to get involved in public service, but they it doesn't look it, politics looks ugly. Yes, it a does. A lot of people think it's ugly. It definitely can seem that way. It is frustrating and unpleasant. And for people like me who don't like reading long reports, it can also be very boring. <laughs> right. But what's some advice that you would give to a young person? And I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a piece of advice out of that story, which is sometimes you can have these surprising impacts by doing something that you didn't expect to change the world but did. That's the moral of your story. Mm-hmm. What's something else that you would say to people who are interested in public service but afraid of the ugliness of it? I would tell them to do something that feeds their passion. And public service is broad. Everybody's not meant to be in public office. Everybody's not meant to be in the public eye. That's not your thing. That doesn't mean you can't be in public service, right? Uh, you can still develop public policy. You can still be a community organizer that organizes other people to use their voice, right? So I always encourage young people, do something that you're passionate about because, A, that's not work, and, B, you're going to do it anyway. I think a lot of times people want to fix it all in one fell swoop. I would say pick a lane, any lane, right? But pick a lane that is meaningful to you and you're passionate about and do the work in that lane. Ironically, people will notice you and they will invite you in many times in ways that you hadn't even imagined. And so I just encourage people, don't try to change the world all in one swoop. Pick an area, pick uh, something that, that you know feeds your soul and do that, right? And do that well. And know your personality. If, if you're not a public-facing type person, you can go into politics behind the scenes. Yes, you can. There are multiple ways to do and And I like what you say. People will notice if you're doing a good job. That's you don't right. need to be out front to mm-hmm. be noticed. No, no. And, in fact, I had an incredible team that I built at City Hall intentionally. And I have to say, all of them were younger than me, a lot younger than me. Sometimes they talk, I didn't know what they were talking about, especially when it was with computer stuff. But I will say they each came with their own expertise. And there was only one person that I was a little worried about because I knew uh, he had an activist heart. And I thought, is he, how is he going to fit in City Hall? And he was absolutely remarkable and actually still has that activist heart, but understood how to use that activist heart to move public policy rather than get frustrated that the system didn't respond overnight like I think a lot of people expect it to. That young person's personality fit in with City Hall, but if you have an activist heart and you find that that public policy process is too frustrating, Mm -hmm. then you should go back to movement and become an activist outside of the government. It doesn't mean you're a failure Mm -hmm. in that way. And, and, you know, I've been teaching for 30 years and I have a lot of young people. Part of the reason why I ask my guest to give advice to young people is that I want to learn from this and say, well, what can I tell people? And I I love what you say. Find your passion. Uh doesn't have to be the entire world. Pick a lane. Whether it be public facing or behind the scenes, I think that's great. I really want to thank you. I, I feel like, oh, we just scratched the surface in 30 minutes and I want to talk to you for hours and stuff. But do you have any last things that you feel that you need to say that we didn't get to before we end today? Um, no, I just, I am optimistic about the future of Portland, Oregon. As long as you don't read the newspaper or listen to, like, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. What I know is that people are what makes this city great, and the people will make it better. Great. I always appreciate the optimistic final message. Thanks for coming in, Joanne. My pleasure.